Hi, this is Anthony Galloway from Counter Stories. I want to tell you about another podcast I'm hosting called Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. On this episode, my friend and news reporter Georgia Fort and I connect around the idea of Watch Night, an African-American tradition that dates back to the Reconstruction era, as we anticipate the coming trial of Derek Chauvin. We also speak with community member Kevin Lindsay, CEO of the Humanities Center. Check it out. And if you want to hear upcoming episodes, subscribe to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, I'll be back with the full Counter Stories crew later this week. We are happy to be back in production sharing new episodes with you every week now. Thanks and enjoy this first episode of Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, the reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, Ms. Georgia Fort and myself, Anthony Galloway, will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project from Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner of the Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. I'm Georgia Ford, independent journalist and founder of Black Press. It's a day for poetry and song, a new song. These cloudless skies, this balmy air, this brilliant sunshine are in harmony with the glorious morning of liberty about to dawn upon us. Frederick Douglass, 1862. Watch night, a tradition that dates back to the Civil War when African descendants would fill the night with prayer, song, and anticipation of the promise of new nights and protections. In this case, the Emancipation Proclamation. While the practice would take on a new meaning in the years to come, the act of gathering together to bear witness to the moments when our nation would choose to live up to its own ideals has become every bit a part of our rituals as Watch Night was. Today, we take a look at the landscape as the trial of Derek Chauvin begins with the same anticipation and oscillation between hope and pessimism and that all too familiar feeling that new possibilities hang on this moment. Now, one thing is clear, just as people on the first watch night in 1862 knew that this was only a step in a long road, so too do our communities understand that regardless of the outcome, this moment is not the summation of the moral arc of justice, but a step along the way. Today, we'll dive into the preparation for the trial, get an update from Ms. Georgia on trial news and to compare notes and hear from the CEO of the Minnesota Humanities Center, Mr. Kevin Lindsay. So Ms. Georgia, let's compare notes. Throughout this week, we've seen barricades go up at the government center. We've seen different reports of what's gonna happen with the trial. And even as much as today, the day that we're recording, new delays that may hold the trial. So what's going on with the trial preparations from your vantage point as a journalist? 
Well, it has been an intense week. I think a lot of people anticipated things to be intense next week, but you know, there has been so many changes. We started off the week uh, receiving an apology from the city of Minneapolis about their social media influencer initiative. We heard a, a full four-phase operation safety net report from Chief Arredondo. Of course, like you said, all of the security measures that have been taken. And today, the most recent development and, you know, one of the more recent developments that has come out is the fact that the third degree murder charge should be reinstated according to a decision that was made by the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Now, we will have to wait and see uh, what happens with that because uh, Chauvin's attorney could end up appealing it. But there has been so many twists and turns and even the timeline of when this trial will will start is up in the air and so it has been a a very uh, unexpected week you know just so many unexpected things have happened this week so so let's dive into some of those things you know one of the things that that come up for me um you know my background is in ethnic studies and in particular discourse within communities um, and one of the things that strikes me in the preparation for this is how how much effort and time and energy folks are putting into the anticipation of reaction. Right. We've been at these important moments before. I can think back to being a sixth grader when the when the O.J. Simpson trial was happening. Um, I can think of the conversation happening around my kitchen table about what's likely going to happen when the officers who beat Rodney King were were on trial and then, and then were would be acquitted. And so all of these memories are starting to come back to my own family members as we start getting in preparation for what is to come. Do you get a sense that this is that folks are pessimistic about what's about to happen? I mean, there's a lot of anticipation in the air, not just from the preparations from our own government entities. Absolutely. And I think that our community has been deeply traumatized uh, with our own events similar to Rodney King. I mean, when you think about the Philando Castile verdict and all of the anticipation that was uh, building up in this community around that, when you think about Jamar Clark and um, and then how those two cases compare to Justine DeMond. And so I think that you know, when you talk about this community and you talk about police violence and trial outcomes, you know, it is so critical to contextualize what has led to this moment and what led to the boiling point that now the entire world knows as George Floyd. We had the chance to see what happened, what led to Philando Castile's death based on um, not just what his girlfriend streamed on Facebook Live, but then the dash cam and the body cam footage. And I think there were so many people who thought, you know, here it is, it's caught on tape and, and people were expecting a conviction there, you know, and, and we didn't get one. And so I think that, you know, this community has been deeply traumatized by the lack of accountability in the police system that, yeah, people are already going into this hurt. They're already trying to prepare for the worst. Uh, but I do believe that deep down there is still hope 
that just maybe because the world is watching that this this outcome might be different. You know, it's it's funny as you reflect on the hope that you feel. Um, I felt a very similar way up until this week. Um, and one of the things that I've been coming back to is this sense of, you know, um, this this sense of what hangs on this particular case. All right. And then the history comes back full, full, the patterns that we've seen in the past. And, I, and, and part of me wants to really start to level set and say, OK, I'm hopeful that something different happens here. But regardless of whether or not uh, uh, there's accountability that happens here or, or or something else that we this is just a step. I'm constantly reminded that, even, you know, regardless of what happens in this trial, there are so many other battles and so many fronts. And there can be a little bit of battle fatigue from folks who are trying to push for change on a whole lot of different fronts. And this is just yet another moment where there's a, a little bit of a, of a breath being held just to see what happens. Um, and, I, and I say that very intentionally around the breath being held because um, and, and, it's wrapped up in everything that's happening with this trial. And, and so you, you bring up just the, you know, Fernando Castillo case. Now, we know in that case that there was a whole lot of ups and downs that happened. There was the county attorney, John Choi, coming in and bringing the charges in the first place, which was a moment of, OK, all right, there's some momentum. And then we have a jury that comes in and, and their decision, make the decision to acquit uh, the officer for the charges that were brought. So there's some recent feeling around that. Now, that happened not too far from where I live, and that happened with somebody who I went to high school with. We're talking about Philando Castillo. I'm a graduate of Central High School. And so there's a lot of conversation in the folks in that community like, here we go again, getting ahead of the trial, getting ahead of the jury selection. There's all these steps and stages. They're going to have us holding our breath over and over again. So I want to remind folks that make sure you take your breaths as we lead up to this in anticipation. Um, I, I think it's going to be very important for us as a community to make sure we are breathing and taking care of ourselves as we go through some familiar patterns. So, so uh, Miss Georgia, what's next? Uh, what's to come in in the stages that are happening? I know there are some new developments, yes, but what are what are what can we expect in the next stages in a general sense for the trial? Well, we do have to see what the re- the defense response is to the third degree murder charges. Uh, being reinstated or at least them being recommended to be reinstated. We also have to see how the judge responds to that. Then from there, uh, if if that goes through, then we would be moving into jury selection. And I do think that that entire process is going to be a process of our community holding their breath and just waiting to see what type of jury is selected. Is this a jury that has a bias? Is this a jury that is going to lean more in favor of the defense? Is this a jury that is going to approach this, you know, tactfully? And so uh, the next phase in this case is is moving into jury selection and also simultaneously in connection with the public safety piece, we would be moving then into what what's considered phase two of the Minneapolis Police Department's Operation Safety Net Plan. And so phase two is ramping up um, the presence of officers in our community. Phase three will begin during closing arguments. As soon as closing arguments begin, 
They will deploy all of their uh, resources. Um, they are working with other agencies across the state. We did see some of that over the fall, like when Chauvin was released on bail. They had conservation officers responding to protests. They had state patrol responding to protests in addition with MPD. So we'll see that in combination with the National Guard. And phase three of Operation Safety Net will actually last, uh, that full deployment will last until uh, they feel like they can start to withdraw. And then we'll move into phase four, which will be kind of wrapping things up. So, you know, phase two of Operation Safety Net kicks off next week. Jury selection, as long as uh, things don't, um, you know, get kind of hung up with that uh, last charge that just got reinstated. Thank you so much for that overview. It's really helpful to start to kind of think about how I'm going to plan my breaths over the course of of, of the the mo- time to come or the moments to come. Um, I know in addition to that organizing, we also have communities who are organizing to make sure that there are places for folks to process, to 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 take their breaths as they need to. I know that clergy across the, the state of Minnesota are organizing prayer and, and ramping up opportunities for congregations to do their own um, reflection throughout this moment as we um, come closer and closer to um, the outcome, which is what everybody's got their eye towards, what what is going to happen on the outset. Um, so I thank you so much for your, for your weekly coverage, your daily coverage throughout the week. Um, it's been very helpful to listen to the two-minute segments, uh, Ms. Georgia, that you're doing to help get us some good information because right now there's a whole lot of misinformation that's out there all from various different sources. So it's been helpful to be able to track along with you these updates as they go. Um, I know we're going to be bringing on our guest Kevin Lindsay in just a second, but I want to remind folks um, that part of our role in bearing witness is just to do that, to do some connecting of some dots, to do some reflection um, about what's real, what's happening, and then to, to do some com- comparisons throughout history so we can stay connected to past, present, and future, that idea of Sankofa that's so close and present, at least um, to many of us here uh, at Bearing Witness. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center and the other media group. I want to bring in our guest, Kevin Lindsay, CEO of the Humanities Center, as we switch to the second part of our Bearing Witness uh, show that does some reflection with folks from community who are experiencing the same things that we're reflecting on at the first part of our show. Uh, the Kevin Lindsay and the Humanities Centers is a crucial part of the Racial Reckoning Project for which Bearing Witness is a part. And I think it's really good to start getting the perspectives of folks who are living this moment with us from various perspectives of our community. Uh, Brother Lindsay, I'll pass it over to you to introduce yourself, and then we've got some wonderings for how you're reflecting on this moment. Well, Anthony, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate listening in on the conversation between you and Miss Georgia Fort. Uh, the Minnesota Humanities Center will be celebrating 50 years come October of this year. We uh, do work within the space of education. Uh, for example, we just held a Realizing Wakanda event. We held uh, a space for parents, people who want to support our young scholars to learn from our scholars within college and scholars um, around the, the state. 
We also facilitate sort of public humanities conversations, such as the commemoration on the Duluth lynching, which we held um, with Michael Fito, Dr. Bill Green, Judge Lu Jin Lang uh, last year, and looking forward to continuing on the commemoration exercises with the great folks in Duluth. And then uh, we partner with Ampers in uh, this project, in which we host community forums for people to become citizens of the democracy. Um, the National Endowment of the Humanities exists so uh, that all of us can fully participate. And within its enabling legislation, it says a democracy demands the wisdom of its citizens. So we help to facilitate that kind of opportunity for citizens. So really appreciate being a part of this project. So, uh, Mr. Lindsay, you've got an interesting perspective because you have a law background, I believe, as well. And so I'm really curious to see what, um, how this moment and this anticipation, this preparation for the trial, how is that hitting you um, as we get into these, to the beginnings of this process? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So this is uh, kind of an interesting moment for me because there's a lot of intersections. So uh, I was a commissioner of human rights for the state of Minnesota under Governor Mark Dayton. So I had a chance to see firsthand how a state would prepare and then also local law enforcement might prepare for the security related issues that Ms. Georgia was talking about. Um, as someone who's practiced law for 30 years, um, I have some ideas and, you know, uh, aspects of sort of the strategy and the gamesmanship, which is going on, uh, having been fortunate enough to take cases to trial and then also been um, fortunate enough to take cases on to appeal. And then um, just the aspect of sort of Lando Castillo and working with his family through uh, the issues uh, after the trial, what that meant. And then I think from a historical perspective, some of the work that we have been doing uh, in and around criminal justice issues. I think it's really profound also the intersectionality of what happened in Duluth and the fact that George Floyd's murder happened a hundred years, almost to the anniversary of the lynching that happened there. Uh, were you all involved in any conversations around um, just even, you know, the thought of history repeating itself? Very much so. Um, we actually did a program with uh, Twin Cities Public Television and then a couple of uh, other partners. So, the aspect that, that some Minnesotans don't, uh, aren't aware of that we were able to kind of bring light is the fact that there was a photograph that was used um, and ultimately became a postcard. And that postcard photograph was of the lynching, the, the bodies actually um, hanging from the lamppost outside of the demolished jail there in Duluth. And literally hundreds of people in Duluth standing there around the respective bodies. And there was a newspaper article uh, headline that ran, and it suggested that it was clear that there was going to be justice meted out because it was so clear that th these folks must be guilty because they were literally standing next to the bodies. So uh, the trauma um, that the African-American uh, community has felt where it would seem that it would be very clear through the evidence and then not having justice meted out, um, I think that's right to hold that collective breath because we're not quite sure exactly how uh, this this case is going to resolve itself. I know that Anthony has some things planned, but anytime people mention Duluth, I did a lot of coverage on the lynchings there, Clayton Jackson and McGee all murdered in 1920. And to this day, no one has been charged for their murders. 
you know, and it's just devastating to know that that is the history of Minnesota as we approach uh, another pivotal moment in our history as a state to see whether or not justice will be brought forth for a black man who was murdered. The, the one thing that always strikes me about the community in Duluth today is that their chief of police is actually a direct descendant of the woman who falsely accused the circus workers of rape. He is actually um, her great nephew. And so I had an opportunity to interview him back in either 2017 or 2018 when I was anchoring there about his family connection. And so, you know, you talk about holding a breath to be a Black resident in the city of Duluth when the chief the chief of police is a direct descendant of a woman who incited a lynching is, is challenging and traumatic in and of itself. No, I think that's uh, absolutely right. And, and I would say that one of the things that I find interesting within this dynamic, um, and he has said this, um, apologized on behalf of the transgressions of his relatives so how do we create that space? How do we empower folks that are in current positions of power to be able to apologize for the wrongs on the past? And in space here about police community relations, police violence, and sometimes death being brought about by the hands of police, how many people within law enforcement can speak honestly, authentically to the past? And realize that that doesn't necessarily mean that that has to be the, the future always going forward. But you can't have reconciliation until you acknowledge the sins of the past. This is, see, this, these are amazing and perfect connections that we're making here. And it's this historical pattern that's on the front minds of many folks in the community who are, are, are holding breath and, and holding space. And I've, I've got to wonder... As my son sat next to me this morning, we will often, you know, when we have some free time together, we'll just take a moment just to play some video games together and just be in each other's space. And I find him, I find him placing questions just as he just processes what comes into him. And he leans over this morning and he, and he says, so dad, what, what's about to happen with this thing? And this is a nine-year-old about to be 10. And he, he had to, I could see him using the gaming system to just prep for this moment. And there was a whole, some, almost some breath holding himself as he leaned over. So I'm curious um, for, for you two, how are you, how are you holding your own space in, in, in this process so far? I'm really curious to see. So I would say for myself, um, having gone through trial, uh, I realize there's going to be many ups and downs. So to this extent, you you have to kind of maintain uh, a level of, um, of a level in which you are not going to be subjected to sort of the whims of, of up and down. And otherwise, you won't be able to kind of concentrate and, and carry forward. And that's really hard. Um, and for the folks and for the family members, I feel very sorry for them. And I can also appreciate the deep challenges as someone who's advocated for uh, family members in such situations, the challenge that um, counsel has to help guide them through the process. And it's a long process because, um, as you've kind of alluded to here, is that people sometimes forget that, yes, there will be a verdict, um, but then there also might be an appeal. Uh, and then there's also um, 
people wanting to ask questions about the respective case. And then there's anniversaries that come up um, as to the death and as to the trial. So this is just actually, unfortunately, uh, the beginning for a lot of the family members of the issues uh, that they're going to be living with uh, for quite some time. I think it's important too in this this time to hold space for yourself, as you said, Anthony, in in ways that resonates with your body, with your family, with your own rituals of self care. I know that many of us are, you know, working in community in different capacities, and it is so easy to get stretched thin. And so I think it's so important for folks to uh, prioritize time for themselves, times, you know, to rest, to replenish, um, time to just enjoy themselves. And it's it's so simple, but it's so critical. And for me, I think that maintaining uh, somewhat of a daily routine, especially with getting up and, and moving, that has been so um critical for me in preparation of this trial and something I really hope to maintain throughout the trial, despite how crazy things get for, for work. You know, that's, that's so important. And for those who, who are, are following some of the healers in community, uh, Ms. Georgia, Georgia, your, your point and your call to hold that space for self I find myself forgetting that and needing the reminders <laughs> from folks like you to 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 take that time. Because uh, what's true also about our history is as much as we've faced the hardest things that one can imagine, we also have done it with a modicum of joy and connection to the ancestors and building upon those who've gone before us. We can't forget the 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 way in which we care for each other and ourselves with this process because to your point mr lindsey we, we are about to have to relive some of the moments of last summer we have to gonna have to we're about to have to start relive uh, reliving the the details of what happened to brother brother floyd so um that's gonna take some we need us help we need to stay healthy so that we can do that work, that important work and reflection. We don't throw away and forget the things that happened in the past, but we process them and deal with them um, in, in, in healthy ways. And we have to remember those pieces. So I, I guess, you know, as we, you know, as we come to the close of our time, one of the wonderings that I have for, for, for each of you as well is as you think about taking that time and holding that space, um, we've got this, this moment to process but we have many other moments. What are some of the other fronts in which you all are engaging right now? I know, Mr. Lindsay, you're, you're engaging different pieces of, 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 of justice, you know, from not just the George Floyd case, but other parts of Minnesota. You, you know, Miss, Miss Georgia, you, you excellently put some connections between what happened in Duluth to make them present to now. What are some of the other fronts that you're also engaging in, in and around uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin? So with that, um, and I appreciate the, the way in which you phrase that, and then also appreciating your earlier comment about other issues that we also have to be mindful of. So for me, one of the issues that I'm very mindful of is that the Supreme Court has just recently taken a case to examine Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And um, just real briefly, the Shelby County decision, which was authored by our chief judge um, at the Supreme Court, basically did away with oversight and made it a lot easier for states to be able to uh, enact laws which might be viewed as suppression and 
Brennan Center has published a lot on that as to suppression. And um, I would say that I've also spoken on this issue, that I've considered that a lot of the laws enacted after the Shelby County decision are really viewed as voter suppression. I think um, that's going to be a big issue coming forward. Uh, there's a lot of activity over the, the last 60 days as well within state houses across the country seeking to enact more legislation to make it more difficult for us to use e-voting or electronic voting or remote uh, voting. Um, and that, that battle is going to continue on. I think um, the piece of education and sort of the how we look at our history so right before the last president left office, there was a, a report called a 1776 report, which spoke to how that administration thought history should be taught within our respective schools. Um, that has been criticized widely by a lot of educators and historians across the country. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the new administration and uh, the state concerning social studies standards looks at and implements uh, how social studies, how history is taught within our schools. So those are some of the things that we're kind of keeping mind of and thinking of. Uh, there are a few others, but I also appreciate that we only have <laughs> time here. So I thank you for the question. Absolutely. And, and my work has uh, centered, obviously, with me being in media, a, a lot around narrative justice. Uh, as an independent journalist, I do own my own company. And so I have really created the mission and the focus and the purpose of that company, Black Press, to equip Black journalists with the resources they need to be effective. Because our community is not a monolith, I am not capable of telling all of our stories. And so to be able to provide resources to other media makers of color who are amplifying the Black experience uh, will only help us reach that collective goal of true narrative justice and, you know, an expansion of narrative justice's overall media reform uh, because media has been a tool that has been used to dehumanize us to uh, delegitimize our pain and, uh, you know, just perpetuate a lot of negative stereotypes about us going all the way back to the inception of it, like blackface, newscast saturated with black mugshots. And so there is a lot of work to be done in media, media reform, narrative justice. And so that's where the heart of my work has lied. However, I have spent some time volunteering um, with a focus around economic justice um, as a part of the Reparation Steering Committee in St. Paul. And so we just passed a resolution there at the beginning of the year, and we're moving forward with that. And, uh, you know, just hoping that when you look at even the history of Rondo, you know, in St. Paul and, and so many other examples. Uh, but that is probably the most, you know, stark example of why our city really does need to reconcile the Black community um, in, in some type of way economically. And so, yeah, those are have been two areas that I have been focused on outside of the trial. See, it's really great to hear you lay those things out because sometimes we forget and we get into these moments of thinking of 
myopically only at one front at a time. And one of the things that many folks, particularly those in dominant culture, don't realize is that there's so much work happening on multiple fronts at the same time. And and we we have a practice in the history through, you know, ancestral connection of being able to do multiple things at a time. Our grandmothers and aunties and grandfathers and uncles, they were able to you know, simultaneously fight for the things that matter in terms of justice in this moral arc, but also at the same time, take care of home, take care of family and do things on multiple fronts. That's part of who we are. And so I think it's always important to see that folks who are engaging in community are engaging in multiple fronts at a time. You know, I I love that you you laid that out because I think some of us call it we're we're multi hyphenates and it's mm-hmm. just like a part of our culture, but westernized culture, European culture, it, it kind of trains us to think that we have to be one thing, and in our community, you know, we just we can't be one thing. And I, I was having this conversation with actually a white journalist who wanted to interview me about the reparations work, and he considered me an activist because I was volunteering doing this work. And I'm like, no, I'm not an activist. I'm an independent journalist who's volunteering in other capacities. And it's hard for some people to wrap their mind around it. But I think within our culture, it is such a beautiful, unique and and strong trait that we possess to be able to be multifaceted to be able to move from industry to industry and be effective with our skill sets. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's fantastic. I, I always liken it as that we are the, the people that brought the world jazz. So sometimes you go off on your individual, but you still maintain the beat and come back into the group on the right time. So uh, that's how I, kind of, I see what we're doing here. It's just wonderful to be a part of this conversation. I want to talk to us about that stance, right? So we aren't all just what we do or what titles we hold in organizations. We are living, breathing every single day, part members of the community. And so I'll ask you, I'll ask you to that, you know, as, as brother Kevin, as sister Georgia, as brother Anthony, what is, as you think about what is to come, right? What are the things that you are doing as you in community that are holding your holding yourselves healthy and thriving through this moment as we are working across multiple fronts. How are you being you in this moment? Well, for me, uh, I guess I am enjoying um, how I was convinced to get another dog uh, right before the holidays. I don't I don't know how Dad got talked into getting another dog since I can't get people to walk the first dog. Uh, so I'm taking and enjoying uh, the new rescue dog that we decided uh, to bring into the family and that time of getting in the walks and, and enjoying uh, the thaw that we're having. Um, there is a lot that's going on uh, within the community um, and enjoying seeing the small steps of success and just reminding people to appreciate those things. Um, I'm kind of at the point where I've got a little bit more salt in my hair than pepper. So I feel like it's really incumbent upon me just to point things out that things have moved in certain areas. Sometimes people get caught up and they can't see that movement. Miss mm. Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? You know, I am just enjoying being in community. 
you know, I left after college for a few years and went down south. And when I came home, it, it was a little bit of a challenge to reconnect. And I finally feel reconnected, reconnected in my purpose. And so I am cherishing the moments that I get to build in community and find solutions in community and, you know, to me, that it's just so powerful to come to that revelation that everything that we need is right here, that we have it. And to also be able to contribute to that as well is very meaningful and fulfilling. I love that both of your responses centered around love and care in the areas that you are and you are being present in. I love that we when we get into struggle, we care. And we care for each other. You know, I think for myself, I've been really steeping myself in to take care of this moment in conversations, and particularly with my children, around our history, not from the standpoint of our struggle, but from the standpoint of our beautiful movement forward. And I think I love, um, I think that's been bringing me joy is to think about um, caring for the consciousness of my own children throughout this process has given me a particular set of joy. Um, and, and so that's the thing that's been real for me. That's how I've been being me in my community is just looking at the historical story and thinking about what that Sankofa really means, looking at who we were, who we are, and who we want to be. I thank you, Miss Georgia. Thank you to our guest, Kevin Lindsay, who who's able to drop some knowledge jewels on us and just be able to reflect honestly about where you are in community. Um, I'm going to ask uh, for some final words for our listeners as we continue to move forward. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say it from the standpoint of this, um, you know, before we get into an advice or thoughts, I come from the African Methodist Episcopal Church tradition. I'm actually on ministerial staff at St. James AME Church. I'm a baby preacher, right? I get ordained in September fully. But um, I'm left with the story of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones in Philadelphia as they started this denomination, got into a space where the yellow fever pandemic hit Philadelphia and they organized as they were fighting for abolition <laughs> at the same time organized nursing brigades to care for folks during that pandemic. And I just think it's an interesting uh, piece of history that we often ignore is that our community takes care of all communities in times of struggle. And it's a story that we can tell over and over. And so it's left me with an idea and a piece of advice as we go forward to tell folks is to remember the ways in which we have been an asset to the positive growth of this country, right? That's some piece of advice to hold me as we go through this process. And I'm curious, what advice do you have for our listeners and for community listening about uh, uh, as we move forward? What advice do you have for folks? We'll start with you, Brother Lindsay. Well, I appreciate that nugget as it relates to always caring and sort of showing a way forward and being a positive force. Um, you started the show talking about um, the country in America, and I often think that if you really want to know America, you have to take a look through our eyes. And I think the greatness that can be America can be fully achieved. When we um, That check for insufficient funds is actually made good. And this could be a, a step here uh, forward within that space. And all the folks that have carried forward and, and been leaders in that space um, – there are so many from our history that we have a great opportunity to kind of continue that forward. It's not, not a lost on me that the person who argued the Max Mason 
pardon appeal. Uh, Jerry Blackwell is the, one of the attorneys that's going to lead the argument. And to that extent, black lawyers taking leadership and really breathing in authenticity into the law. And we have done that in the past. We've done it in other areas. Uh, we have been leaders within that space. And I, and I do hope that people will see, recognize, and that we will also cherish the things that we have done and continue to do within community. So that's kind of how I see this particular moment in time. Very excited for the stuff that we're doing with the African-American Leadership Forum as a board member. Uh, excited about uh, the work in and around the state and leveraging. And uh, I'm really excited about this project and what Ms. George was saying, what she wants to do. Uh, on media because of some of the work that we've done in the past on truth and transformation in the media. So feel very blessed. Thank you so much for that, Brother Lindsay. It's so insightful. If I had to leave folks with anything, you, you know, the thing that keeps resonating with me is this is our our moment. This is our opportunity to be on the right side of history. You know, this is a historical time and you can lean in and use your voice, speak your truth. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your education is. Start where you are, use what you got, do what you can, you know? And if everybody leans in and just does a little, lifts a little bit of the load, it will be that much lighter for all of us. And so I think that there is a part for all of us in the revolution and uh, I think Dr. Dr. Joy Lewis said it best. It was on the cover of the, the Minneapolis magazine in January. May the revolution be healing. That's a perfect way to end it. May the revolution be healing. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia uh, with our guest, Kevin Lindsay, CEO of the Minnesota Humanities Center. Thank you so much for listening. And say that again, Miss Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. May the revolution be healing. And the congregation said amen, right? Right? Amen. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first episode of our new weekly series. Our next episode will be coming next week, where we'll again touch base, connect the dots, and invite one of our community members to reflect. Thank you all for listening. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center and the other media groups.